They were known for years for their living bras. How did Playtex <laughs> contribute to America's manned space program? An uplifting subject. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh, what's the only river in the world to cross the equator twice? Wow, that's a good one. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, that gives me a different kind of perspective. This is a river that, what was that again? It crosses? It crosses the equator twice. What river crosses the equator twice? It flows both north and south. Man, that's a great question. Okay, is that in the, uh, in the Americas? No. It has to be either in Asia or Africa then. So I'll say, is it in Africa? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Okay, but I don't know the answer. The Congo. The Congo River. Yeah, yeah. It crosses twice and runs both north and south. Wow. How long is that How river? long is it? <laughs> it is 2,920 miles long. Wow. It spans nine countries in Western Africa. It goes through nine countries. Yeah, yeah. It's the second longest river in Africa after the Nile, and it's the ninth longest river in the world. Wow. All right. Very good. Well, Marsha, they were known for years for their living bras. <laughs> How did Playtex contribute to America's manned space program? Well, was it something to do with the, uh, the composition of the living bra that uh, helped in their spacesuits manufacturing? You're right on target. That's exactly right. Not only that, they actually manufactured and still manufacture the spacesuits for American astronauts. Really? The lunar landing suits that astronaut Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin wore on the moon were designed and built by Playtex. I had no idea. Now, the suits had been designed by other people before, but this was a new item. This was a new problem. These suits were going to be worn on the moon, so they not only had to be inflated and pressurized to carry around, you know, human atmosphere, they had to withstand temperatures of negative 280 degrees Fahrenheit in shadows on the moon to 500 degrees Fahrenheit in the sun. That's the range Good of temperature. Lord, that's a range. Golly. And they had to survive being hit by a micrometeorite traveling... <laughs> Traveling 36,000 miles per hour, little specks of dust just hitting them. No wonder I've had the same bra for 50 years. <laughs> now, Playtex was part of a uh, corporation called International Latex Company. They were an unlikely choice. They went up against Hamilton Standard, B.F. Goodrich, and Lytton Industries. And the struggle they went through just to keep the contract could be a movie. In fact, the guy who wrote the book on this actually optioned it to Warner Brothers. Oh, yeah? They haven't made the movie yet. At one point, Playtex won the contract to make the suits. Then they were made a subcontractor to Hamilton Standard. 
So you have to make these, but make them for Hamilton Standard. They've made backpacks for us and everything. So what does Hamilton Standard do? They fired Playtex. (laughs) Then Playtex officials had to fly to Houston, and they begged to be allowed to submit a suit at their own expense, and the government said okay. And within six weeks, they developed a suit with 21 layers, 21 flexible layers. Holy camoly. And yes, some of those layers were composed of bra and girdle material. In six weeks, it's like the skunk works with uh, Lockheed. Martin. Developing that uh, great fighter plane, you're right. In a short time. Okay, So what was their advantage? Well, some of the other suits were too big or too bulky. They couldn't even get back into the spaceship with some of them. (laughs) One's pressurization was so bad, the suit blew the astronaut's helmet clean off. Oh, my God. (laughs) But Playtex, they proved their suit was the best by sending a technician to the Dover High School football field in Delaware near their factory. And he played football with a colleague, and they filmed it. For a couple of hours, he ran, he kicked, he punted, he passed, he dropped to the ground, did push-ups while wearing the spacesuit. He even touched his toes without bending his knees, so they knew, well, this this looks like it would work. And every stitch of every inch of every layer of every suit had to be counted and inspected to make sure it was quality. So they brought in their best seamstresses from their consumer products group. One woman, Eleanor Foraker, remembered, I was sewing latex baby pants, and an engineer came over and asked if I'd like to try something else. <laughs> wow. So she did, and she eventually became a spacesuit assembly supervisor. And Playtex suits worked perfectly. Neil Armstrong even wrote a letter thanking Playtex 25 years later. And to date, they're still making those spacesuits. And guess what's the address of their, uh, the address of their factory? Uh, Spaceway Boulevard? It's, it's One Moonwalker Road. Ah, that One Moonwalker In Dover, Road. Delaware. So That's yeah, very cute. I thought wow. that was a pretty good story. Where did story. you get that from? It's interesting. That came from a couple of sources. One was Fast Company, and another one was from Nicholas Monceau's book, Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo. I never heard about that before. I, I thought that was fascinating. Okay, Bob, Mr. Presidential Scholar. Who was the only person to win all the electoral votes for president? Okay, that's hard to do today because there's a lot of electoral votes, a lot of states. So I'm going to say it was easier in the beginning, <laughs> although to get them all, obviously rare because there's only one person there's who did There's only it. one. And that only one person has to be George Washington. Good for you. All right. <laughs> Our founding father. In 1789, the states ratified the Constitution and decided that an electoral college would meet and elect a president. George was convinced to come out of retirement and received all the votes. Amazing. It is, isn't it? Never happened again. (laughs) That's right. All right. I've got a question from literature. I don't know if you remember this phrase, a lost generation. Sure. And that was from who? Who came up with that phrase? Oh, oh gosh. Let me think. The Lost Generation. It wasn't Tom Wolfe, was it? No, it was 27-year-old Ernest Hemingway. Oh. But he didn't come up with that phrase. Where did he get that phrase? It does sound like an old, old phrase. The Lost Generation. It's, uh, it's not from Peter Pan, is it? <laughs> it's actually Gertrude Stein. Uh-huh. It didn't have the great philosophical tone when she first picked it up either. A garage owner was angry with a young French mechanic who didn't make the proper repairs on Gertrude Stein's Model T Ford, and he told the boy, you are all a lost generation. Oh, that's funny. 
he and he's probably a World War One veteran upset with his uh-huh. young man. Yeah, you know? yeah. But uh, she told Ernest Hemingway, and uh, he was 27. Uh, he heard the phrase in 1926, and he used it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's where a lost generation came from. So. That's one of those examples of, you know, just listen to the world around you and mm-hmm. you'll get your inspiration for your art. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Peter Pan, uh, that was the Lost Boys. That's who I was thinking oh. of. Remember that? The <laughs> yeah. Lost Boys? Uh-huh. Okay. Another presidential question, Bob. The U.S. president gets advice on just about everything from his cabinet officers. Mm-hmm. There are 15 heads of various posts within the administration, but there are only four that make up the inner cabinet, the inner circle. Mm. And that goes all the way back to Washington, those four heads of what four departments? Oh, dear, here we go. Let's see. (laughs) That'd be the Department of State. Correct. I don't think they called it the Department of Defense, but he had the Secretary of War. I'm trying to think of what... Agriculture. Nope. Oh, okay, help me. Hamilton. Oh, Secretary of the Treasury. Yep. That's okay. Yeah. The one. That's right. We need money to, to run a government. <laughs> that's right. And the fourth is the justice. So those were the four major cabinet posts in yeah. the original cabinet. Yeah. That uh, when they meet with the cabinet officers, there are many, many presidents, including this one, include the vice president in their inner circle. All right, Marsha. His hatred of a particular clothing item led him to invent something used by women to this day. He was an author. Who was he? What was his invention? He hated a particular item of clothing. For men or women? For men. For men. I'll tell you the item of clothing. Suspenders. He hated suspenders. Okay, so he did the zipper. No. No? The belt. Nope. What else holds up your pants? Uh, Stretchy stuff? Well, it's interesting because the invention never was used to hold up pants. Velcro? No. His hatred of a particular clothing item led him to invent something used by women to this day. Who was he? What was his invention? Boy, you already did the bra question. Well, this is a different thing about the bra. The bra clasp. Wow, you really went down an interesting avenue. I went down the, (laughs) yeah, let's not talk about that. Uh, The bra clasp, and who was it invented by? I don't know, Bob. Mark Twain. Mark Twain? Yes, Samuel Clemens. How did that happen? That's right. The bra clasp, that <laughs> that hook into loops fastener that you have on the back of your bras. That men and women have tried to figure out for years. That's right. <laughs> Samuel Clemens invented that. I'll be damned. It was patented in 1871. He called it an improvement in adjustable and detachable straps for garments. It didn't mention ladies' undergarments. The strap was intended to be a portable one used to tighten shirts at the waist. It was supposed to take place of suspenders for trousers. Well, it never caught on for pants or shirts, only brassiers. And bra manufacturers quickly began applying it to ladies' undergarments. And his hook clasp became the standard for bras for the next 150 years. Still used to this day. You betcha. Who would think that you would be thanking Samuel Clemens for that little bra clasp? (laughs) I love it. I love it. Now, he invented something for hobbyists. Did you know what he invented for hobbyists? No. A scrapbook with sticky pages. Oh, well, God bless him. <laughs> he loved scrapbooking, but he hated the paste and the glues, and so he created a scrapbook with self-adhesive pages. 
And while you and I may have never heard of it, the U.S. Patent Office says the improvement in scrapbooking was very popular, sold 25,000 copies, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper says he made $50,000 from the sales of that alone. Well, see, that's why he falls in the category of extraordinary, an extraordinary man on many levels, because extraordinary people do multiple things. All right. Okay, Bob. Other than Jews, who did Hitler want to get rid of? Gee, anybody who disagreed with him. Well, that's one. (laughs) That is exactly right. Anyone opposed to the Nazis. Yeah. But there were very specific people that were part of his final solution. Okay. People with disabilities. Oh, that's right. He didn't like flaws in people, (laughs) did he? Uh, Homosexuals, gypsies, and then anyone who didn't like the Nazis. I didn't know he had those categories all lined up for extinction. Well, if you came to the camp and you were disabled, they put you over here. and Right away. Yeah, they got rid of you. Well, let me move on to something more fun, fornication. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> What's the origin, Bob, of the word fornication? That's a good question. It is. Pornography. <laughs> oh, I don't know. How did, well, how did that begin? How did fornication? Pornography. Root words, right? Mm-hmm. The word comes from the Latin word fornix, which means arch or vault. What, you say? (laughs) Archer vault? It seems back in the good old days of ancient Rome, brothels were often in caves, under arches, and even in baker's ovens. What? (laughs) A brothel in a baker's oven? I can't make this up. Gonna have a hot Uh, time in the old town tonight. The word, that's exactly where that phrase came from. The word (laughs) for next began to become the Latin word for brothel, which eventually led us to the English word that we all know and love, fornication. Another F word. (laughs) You can thank your encyclopedia of word and phrase origins you gave me (laughs) to to come up with these doozies. So it's my fault. Oh, of course. All right. Okay, Marcia, this is kind of interesting because we all know that there are certain things that are named wrongly, incorrectly. Yeah. Okay, and I've got a few here, all right? Uh Uh-huh. A pineapple is not related to an apple. It's a berry. A horned toad is not a toad, it's a lizard. And banana oil has nothing to do with bananas. It's made from (laughs) petroleum. There's so much, so much of that out in the world, Bob. So many lies. Here's more lies. Oranges, (laughs) lemons, and believe it or not, watermelons are all berries. Really? Yeah, they're not what you think. At least they're not nuts. And a tomato is not a vegetable, it's a fruit. fruit. It's a berry, too. So those are all things that aren't named by what you would think they would be. Those are all misconceptions. We are so... So smart. (laughs) We know these answers. All right, two questions on travel. Who was the first U.S. president to set foot on foreign soil while in office? Say it again. Who was the first U.S. president to set foot on foreign soil while in office? While in office. Yes, because we know that Ulysses S. Grant took a world trip, but that was after he was president. Yeah, and what did I miss? Uh, Jefferson went before he was president, right? Mm -hmm. Let's see, who would have gone over there? I don't know. Okay, the first president to set foot on foreign soil while in office was in 1906. It was Teddy Roosevelt, who went to Panama. Oh, I should know. Now, who's the first president to travel to Europe while president? It was close to that time. After Teddy? I don't know. Woodrow Wilson. Okay. When he was campaigning for the League of Nations. Okay. People had been overseas before who became president or after they were president. 
you know, well, John Adams uh-huh. was over there as a diplomat before he became president. Uh-huh. But uh, while president, there were no presidents that went outside U.S. soil until 1906. So over yeah. 100 years passed. I'll be darned. According to the U.S. State Department, Bob, what are vertical transportation units? Vertical transportation units? They're not, uh, well, okay, State Department. So it's got to be actually something that's used outside of the country. Hmm. You're getting too complicated. I am? Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about elevators then. Yes. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Why use one word when three words will work better? That's the well, State Department. elevator was a trade name originally. That was not uh, just a generic term. Elevator and escalator were both trade names of the Otis Company. Okay. Yeah, so they wow. were invented. All right, speaking of uh, elevators, when and where was the first concrete grain elevator introduced? You know, the silos that uh, people use to put grain? Was it in Europe? No. U.S.? The U.S. U.S. Now, they had them before. Kansas? No. (laughs) New York City? No. Orlando? (laughs) No, Marsh. You're going farther away. Come closer to home here. It was uh, in 1900 at Duluth, Minnesota, Frank Peavy built the 3.3 million bushel elevator, which reduced insurance rates on stored grain by 83% and more. His elevator made wood obsolete for building large grain storage facilities. It was considered an innovation in agriculture. Well, that's pretty obscure, Bob. Who the <laughs> heck knows that? Well, speaking of obscure, that's me. <laughs> I want to take a break. Let's take a break. I think it's time. All right. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Back from obscurity, this is Bob Smith along with my partner, Marcia Smith, and you're listening to The Off-Ramp. Okay, speaking of authors, which we did, <laughs> how much was Sigmund Freud paid for his major work, The Interpretation of Dreams? This is a story almost like the famous artists of the same period, the Impressionists. A lot of them didn't get rich, right? Right. I read that book. I used to read it under my pillow at night. I don't know why. I didn't understand half Marcia, of it. Marcia, the question oh, is, yes. how much? <laughs> how much was he paid? Okay, what year was that? 1899. Okay, I'll say $50,000. He was paid 209 Oh, my gosh. That's it. Now, there might have been good justification on the part of the publisher because it took eight years before the entire first printing 600 copies was sold. Oh, wow. As for the money he got, Freud himself said, insight such as this falls to one's lot but once in a lifetime. Today, the book is much more popular. At least three publishers sell it today. Wow. But he only got paid $209, and that's because in eight years, only 600 copies you know, were sold. But yeah. then it became a huge bestseller in this field. Wow. I was fascinated by it as uh, in grade school, a little girl. I actually read it at night in bed. Really? Yeah. Well, I, the rest of us had our transistor radios listening yeah. to rock well, music. I did that, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you're listening to rock and roll and reading an interpretation of dreams. I was. I didn't understand half of it, but it fascinated me. Well, here's the rock and roll part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know how people often say, Bob, that you can't hold a candle to me? You know how that is? No, but, people, but, people say that? Well, you don't hear them? No. Oh, okay. Maybe not. What? But would you like to guess where the origin of the phrase, he can't hold a candle to you, meaning he's greatly inferior to you. You know where that came from, that phrase? That's a great phrase, and I had never thought about it. He can't hold a candle to you. What would that be? So that goes back before electricity. Does it, How far back uh-huh. does that go? 16th century. Holy cow, five yeah, or 600 yeah. years? It was common in those good old days 
for servants to guide their masters along poorly lit streets by holding candles or going into a dark theater so they wouldn't trip. Oh, for the master, like holding (laughs) an elevator. Yeah, it was considered the worst of the menial jobs for servants. But some poor unfortunates didn't always know the way around the roads or the theater, and they kind of got lost, and they were said not to be worthy to hold a candle to anyone. Oh, is that what that means? Indignant masters, you aren't worthy of holding a candle to anyone, isn't it? I had no idea. (laughs) All right, Marcia, this comes from the you gotta start somewhere category, okay? Uh Uh-huh. What was the first professionally produced album where the rock artist John Bon Jovi first appeared? Again, you gotta start somewhere and at least he got paid. What was the first professionally produced album that he appeared on? Well, was it a famous album? It was at the time, 1980. 1980, I don't know. Was it a Michael Jackson album? Oh, no, it wasn't that good. It was the Star Wars Christmas album. <laughs> oh, they had a Christmas album? <laughs> In 1980, yeah. <laughs> and John Bon Jovi was billed under his birth name, John Bon Jovi, spelled B-O-N-G-I-O-V-I, and guess the title of the song he sang lead on. Uh Galaxy on High or something like that. No? <laughs> well, close. Yeah. <laughs> R2-D2, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Okay. So that was his first gig professionally That's... on vinyl. Then from there, John Bon Jovi became huge. Mr. Bob, how did the Red Sea get its name? It must have to do with soil runoff. I don't know. Is it something like ancient soil runoff that well, turned it red? Or was it an algae? Oh. Is that what it was? It is. An algae. Oh, Good for you. This is an ancient lake in the Middle East, right? Yes, and I thought for sure you'd go with the runoff because that's what I did. But nay, it was. It contains a certain algae, which I cannot pronounce, which when dying turns the normally intense blue-green water red. So it's dying algae. It's the Red Sea. It is. And it's not the Dead Sea then. It's got something alive in it. Yeah. If it's got algae growing there. That's exactly right. Okay, Marsha, I have another musical question for you. Mm -hmm. If you're a musician, do you want to join the 27 Club? Oh, no. I know what that is. Oh, what's the 27 Club? It's all the young rockers that died at age 27. That's right. That included Janis Joplin, uh, Morrison. um, Yeah, there were quite a few. Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. 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 More than 50 musicians are members, or I should say more than 50 former musicians or late musicians are members of the 27 Club. That's amazing. 50. Yeah. uh, That just shows you. You're probably... You're out of your, you're getting too confident probably at 27. You're starting to feel empowered and uh, invincible. Lots of money at the very young age. Lots of money, invincible. Janis Joplin, right? Yeah, and you do kinds of stupid stuff. Stupid stuff. Okay. I've got a question for you about the first submarine attack to claim lives in warfare. When do you think that occurred? The first submarine attack (sighs) that claimed lives in warfare. I'll just say 1912. Well, the first submarine attack to claim lives in warfare was in 1777. (laughs) I wouldn't have guessed that. 1777, during the American Revolution, Sergeant Ezra Lee commanded the Turtle. That was the name of the world's first military submarine. It was a one-man vehicle. One man. Yeah, he was sealed in it like a sardine. And to attack a British vessel, he used a long-hand wooden screw to bore holes into the bottom of English ships. You're kidding. They must have felt that at the bottom of the 
the hull. So basically, he would go up to the ship underwater, and then he'd you know screw a hole in him, and then they uh, a clock timer would detonate a bomb. He would put a bomb in the bottom of the ship, and the clock timer would detonate the bomb after a twenty minute getaway. It wasn't wow. wasn't too successful because the screw couldn't penetrate many British vessels. Because they had metal-plated hulls. So they were very innovative, the Navy of the British Navy, even in 1777. But in 1777, crew members of the British frigate Serbius hauled in an object they thought to be a wooden keg, and it exploded, killing three men and blowing up a schooner that it was towing, all of which led the captain of the British ship to complain loudly of unsportsmanlike tactics. <laughs> unsportsmanlike. The British, that's not how you should kill us. The British always thought war was like yeah. a sport. You know? I know. That's not, that's very uncivilized. No, no, you should just come up, bow, and then shoot us in the face. You yes. killed three of our men. Yeah. How unsportsmanlike. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, here's a word, Bob. You want to tell me what you think it might mean? Okay. Qetopia. Qetopia? Yeah. How do you spell that? Q-U-E-U-E-T-O-P-I-A. Is it like a question mark-topia? Q mean question? No. I have no idea. It was a word invented by Winston Churchill, and I, I actually had to go online to find out how to pronounce it. Qetopia. He... He invented a word to describe communist countries where people had to line up to buy anything. Oh, so the Q means a <laughs> yeah, line. Yeah. That's the British word yeah. for line. That's They're funny. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Hilarious. And it still goes on. Okay, Marcia, what major American magazine started out as a pamphlet to promote dress patterns? Women's Wear Daily? No, it's, it doesn't have a name that suggests uh, clothing. Okay. What is it? McCall's magazine. McCall's. Well, McCall's is a name of patterns. Well, you're right. Most women are familiar with McCall's dress patterns. They came out first, then the magazine was invented to promote them. McCall's first appeared in April of 1876 under the name The Queen, and Scots-American entrepreneur James McCall started the McCall Pattern Company in 1870 with a small shop on Broadway. He used his eight-page pattern and fashion periodical to promote dress patterns, and it later grew to become a major women's magazine, it which was, published until the early 2000s. It's 2002. I looked it up while you were talking. Okay. And uh, yeah, because I don't recall seeing it lately, so that is why. So uh, the major American magazine that started out as a pamphlet to promote dress patterns was McCall's. What's weird is I never connected the two, the patterns and the magazine. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I don't know why. Okay, and I'm going to close with this question, Marcia. Who occupied the first stocks for prisoners in Boston. Stocks are those wooden things you'd stick your arms or heads and your through. Head through, yeah. yeah. Who so, occupied the first stocks for prisoners in Boston? In Boston. Yes. Oh, I'll bet it was uh, people who threw the tea over the side of the ships. This was in 1634, so it was over 100 years before that. Oh, okay, then who? Okay. The person who occupied the first stocks for prisoners in Boston was the man who built them. <laughs> In 1634, a man named Palmer built the stocks for the city of Boston. He submitted a bill for one pound 13 shillings. Well, the town elders thought that was excessive, so they charged him with profiteering. So instead of making one pound 13 shillings, they fined him one pound oh. and sentenced him to a half hour in the same stocks oh, he built himself. That is, wow, what is sad justice that is. Huh? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was good. All right, you've got a last thing there you want uh, to use. I'm going to close with a quote. But, okay, I'm going to finish with a quote from Grand Prix legend Mario Andretti, who said, 
if everything seems under control, you're just not going fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, I think we've gone fast enough. I think the time is up. Oh, we've crossed the line here. We hope you enjoyed our show today. And if you'd like to give us a question, you can go to our website, theofframp.show, and... Scroll to contact us and leave us your name, your address, your question and the answer. And if you could tell us where you got the answer, that would be great, too. So that's it for today. We hope you uh, will join us again when we return. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Thanks for joining us today on The, the Off Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.